We're in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Paul continues and says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, as you can see, we're going to be covering some heavy stuff. It does sound like today, and we're going to talk about that tonight. Paul has just stated, remember when we were last together, Paul has just stated that the gospel is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. Go back to chapter 1 and look again at verses 16 and 17 to kind of catch up with where he's just left off and where he's going to go now. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So he's just stated that the power, the gospel is God's power for salvation for everyone who believes. Now Paul's going to begin a multi-chapter breakdown of the gospel. And that's what we're going to be looking at tonight and over the next few weeks as we get into chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6. We're going to, Paul's going to be breaking down the gospel for a little while at the beginning of the book of Romans in great detail. Now the word gospel means what? Good news. Now, in order for there to be good news, there has to be bad news. And that's what Paul begins to talk about, the bad news. Unfortunately, in a world today that we live in, there's a lot of people don't understand or don't believe there's bad news. If you talk to most people today and said, if you died today, would you go to heaven? A lot of people, most people would say, yeah, I think so. And they think they're a pretty good person. They don't understand the bad news. Paul begins to lay out the bad news And in order for us to be willing to receive God's gift of righteousness by faith, that's the good news, the gospel, we must be willing to acknowledge our sin or our lack of righteousness. Paul uses the word here in our our, our section tonight, unrighteousness. Now, I want you to notice a word that Paul used in verse 17 and a word he used again in verse 18. Look at verse 17 again. 
For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is what? Revealed. All right, now jump over to verse 18. For the wrath of God is, there it is again, revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, God has revealed, as we already dealt with in in our study of Romans 1, God has revealed that righteousness is by faith. We touched on that, and we'll be dealing with it over and over in our study of Romans. But not only has he revealed that righteousness is by faith, he's also revealed that his wrath is toward sin. And that's what we're going to take some time to take a look at. God has revealed that righteousness is by faith, and he's also revealed that his wrath is toward all unrighteousness. Now, man's unrighteousness is seen, according to what Paul says here, in how mankind ignores God and deny him and live for themselves and suppress the truth. Look at again in verses 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So Paul lays this foundation and he says this. God has revealed himself through creation from the beginning of the world, but not just that he exists. His divine nature, his eternal qualities have been clearly seen through everything that has been made so that mankind is without excuse. No one's going to be able to stand before God one day and say, I didn't know you were there. They know. Now, they may not acknowledge it. They may try to suppress the truth. They may try to deny the truth. But the Bible is very, very clear. There is really no such thing as an atheist. Everyone knows there's a God. And you're going to see that later on in our study of this passage as well. But what I want to do is I want to just kind of take you back in your mind to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, you could all start it for me. In the beginning, what? God. And by the way, you want to have some fun? You go back on your own time and you pull out chapter 1 of Genesis and just highlight every time God put his name in the first chapter. Actually, if you go in chapter 1 and a little bit into the first six verses of chapter 2, you will find that God put his name in chapter 1 in just a few verses of chapter 2 over 30 times. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And God saw all that he had made, and it was good. And God said, let there be light. And then there was light. And God saw that it was good. And God said this. And God created. And God did. And he put his own name over and over and over in the very beginning of the Bible, in the first book of the Bible, over 30 times his name is there. And what do people say about how the world came into existence? Yeah, a big accident, some big explosion, some big bang. It all happened by chance over billions of years. And even though God has made it very, very clear, they deny the truth. They suppress the truth. Go to Rome, uh, sorry, Psalm 19. Go to Psalm 19. Look at verses 1 through 14. <clears throat> Psalm 19, starting in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. I'm just going to stop real quick. A lot of times when I need to be reminded of the fact that I'm not God, and by the way, we all need to be reminded of that because our flesh wants to be God. That's what we've been infected with from the garden. I will 
go out at night when my house was quiet, go out on my back, not really a porch area, there's, it's a, there's a deck by our pool, and at night I'll just go sit and look at the stars and just try to fathom how far away those stars really are. Oh, and by the way, the Bible says God holds all that in his hands. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has sent a a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs his course with joy, with joy, its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David begins this psalm by talking about how God's glory and his power and his his authority has been revealed through creation, and when you take some time to really let that speak to you, you're going to humble yourself and say, who am I to even talk to you? Lord, I need you. You're immense. You're beyond my ability to conceive. It's foolish that some people think they are God. In the big scheme of things, we're about the size of one of the grains of sand on the seashore in comparison. And we humble ourselves when we get to that point and say, okay, there is a God and there's a creator. None of this could have happened by accident. Think about all, have you ever thought about, I mean, we could take the rest of the night just talking about this. I've sat sometimes, I remember when my kids were little and I looked at them, held them as a baby and even just looking at myself, how come my fingers stopped growing but my fingernails kept growing? You know, you ever just take a little bit of time to even think about all that kind of stuff. At what point did this cell decide, I'm no longer going to be a bone, now I'm going to be this? It's crazy if you take the time to just look at it and just take some time to meditate on all that God has revealed. Go to Psalm 50. Look at verse 6. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Now, how in the world do we go from being amazed by the glory of God, by his creation, to now all of a sudden acknowledging that he's judge? Well, let me just give you one of the ways. If he made it, who's in control of it? If he created it, who gets to say how it's supposed to function? 
He does. That's why Paul, later on in our study of Romans, will say, can the clay say to the potter, why'd you make me like this? We got to be reminded regularly of the fact that we're but dust. He's an amazing God. By the way, before I go any further, there was a man named Job. And God was doing a work in his life, and God and Satan are having a little discussion, and Satan points out Job, and God says, I'll tell you what, I'll let you do some things with control. And he allows Satan to do some stuff in Job's life, and he goes through some horrific suffering, losing his family, losing his possessions, eventually losing his health. And Job starts to grumble. Oh, he starts off grid. But if you read the book of Job, you'll start to see a deeper issue start to come out. He said, I know this isn't tied to my sin. Something else is going on, but who can talk with God? I would love to have a face-to-face with him, but how can you have a face-to-face with God? And then in chapter 38 of Job, God shows up and he says, I understand you wanted to have a little face-to-face with me. I got no problem with that. I'm going to ask you a few questions first. Once you're done answering those, you can ask me any question you want. And then God, for four chapters, only uses creation to deal with Job. He doesn't use philosophy. He doesn't use all the stuff that we would use and intellectual stuff. He just uses, you go back and look, chapters 38 through 42 of Job, it's all creation. He says, where are you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where is its footings? Surely you know. Where's the snowstorm? Who controls how far the seas go and says no more? And for, he starts talking about Leviathan. He starts talking about the behemoth. And God only uses creation and his control over the universe to talk to Job. And when God's done, Job says, I'd heard of you. Now I've seen you. And I repent in sackcloth and ashes. And actually, I'm good. I don't, I don't need to have any questions answered. You're in control. Jesus comes on the scene. He's God. But he takes on human form so that he can live the sinless life in our place and die in our place and give us salvation after he rises from the dead. But while he's on the scene, God himself is wanting to comfort his disciples and, and, and give them encouragement and tell us not to worry. And do you know what he uses to help us with that? Creation. He says, look at the birds. Learn from the birds. They gather. God takes care of them. Aren't you more value than they are? Look at the, look at the grass. Isn't Solomon clothed in all his glory? Nowhere near as beautiful as all this grass is, yet the grass is burned up and thrown in the fire. Aren't you of more value than the grass? If God takes care of all of this and he's in control of all of that, what makes you think for a second that you're outside of his control and his care? And God, most of the time, is going to use creation and what he's already laid out for us. He's going to use other things. We'll see that in our study of the gospel. But he begins with creation to reveal, I'm here. And I made it all. And I get to determine how it's all supposed to function. Of course, nowadays, people want to choose their own gender. and They want to say how things should be or shouldn't be. Change the climate. Change the climate, which we can't. 
even though we fool ourselves into thinking we can. That's always been an interesting thing to me. And nobody would agree anyway. Well, here's the deal. The thing that's always been interesting to me is the fact that that the Bible is very, very clear that we're of more value than the animals. But people today would say the animals are of equal value with us, if not more value than us. Yet, those same people that would say the animals are of equal value with us, all of a sudden we have no problem putting ourselves in more value when we're above God and we can control the climate. But we digress. Go to Proverbs chapter 9. Go to Proverbs chapter 9, look at verse 10. Now, let me just help you out for the end of the study tonight. As we deal with all this, be careful, because there will be a strong sense within us of self-righteousness, and God's going to blow it up. So, go to Proverbs chapter 9, look at verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of who is insight? The Holy One. In other words, the one that is perfect, the one that is pure, the one that can do no wrong. Oh, and by the way, if you were to ask most people today, who is the opposite of God? They would say who? There is none. Are you telling me that Satan is the opposite of, no. They're not even in the same category. They're not even in the same boxing weight class. He is alone. He's other. You can't even compare him. Yeah, we try to. Go to Proverbs chapter 30. This may shock you. Go to Proverbs chapter 30. By the way, this is going to be in the Old Testament. God not only has revealed himself through creation, he's used his word, as we just talked about in Psalm 19, and the law of the Lord is perfect. Listen to Proverbs 30, verses 1 through 9. The words of Agur, the son of Jacob, the oracle, the man declares, I am weary, O God, I'm weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? And who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? Don't miss this. And what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die, God. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Look at that. When you start to really come to wisdom and insight of the Holy One, you will acknowledge, I am nothing. He is everything. And I can't even assume that I can figure him out. The only way I'm going to get wisdom is if he gives it to me. I can't figure God out. I've had so many people, you might have said it yourself. I'm sorry if you did, but I'm just going to tell you, I've had so many people over the years say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God a few questions. Didn't Job say that? And when he met him, did he have any questions? Neither will you. 
Neither will you. Will you? And I'm just going to say this to you in love. That whole attitude of when I see him, I'm going to ask him a few things shows that you still don't realize. I'm going to say it because it's in the Bible, how stupid you are. But God begins to reveal truth little by little. Let me say this to you, folks. God wants to be known. He wants to be found. He's actually designed finding him like a big game of hide and seek. God initiates it and he says, I'm here. I've revealed myself through creation in many other ways. I'm here. But now you have to come find me. Go to Acts chapter 17. Look at Acts 17, verses 22 through 31. Paul is now speaking to a group of thinkers, intellectuals, who love to sit around and talk about the latest thing. And they'd also made all these shrines and idols and worshipped all these other gods. And they even made one to an unknown god in case they missed one. Look at Paul, verse 22 of Acts 17. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything else. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. In other words, God determined when you'd be born and where. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even if some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. We'll deal with that a lot more when we get to chapter 2. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Don't miss what Paul said. There's a God. You don't know him. But he's the one who made everything. And he doesn't live in temples made by man. He's not served by human hands if he needed anything. And he determined everybody's birth date, death date, where they would live. He's in control of all that. And he's done that so that they would find him. And he's also determined that there's a day of judgment coming for all of us as well. And he's given proof of who that judge is going to be and who he's going to judge through by raising him from the dead. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, that without faith it's impossible to please God, for we must believe that he exists and he rewards those who what? Diligently seek him. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 say there's no one righteous, not even one. Verse 11 says there's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. But God, even though no one seeks him on their own, will begin the game of hide and seek, if you will, by saying, I'm here. Many different ways he reveals himself. That's why Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 44 said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Then in verse 45, as it says in the prophets, they all will be taught by God. Whoever listens comes to me. God reveals himself 
through all, to all of us, through creation. We're going to get, when we get to chapter 2, he uses other things as well, our consciences. He's going to use the Spirit. He's going to use the Word of God. We're going to deal with all of this as we break down the gospel. But right now, even if all you got was creation, the Bible says that's enough in order to be saved. What about those who have never heard? You ever heard that debate in Sunday school? The Bible says there's no such people. Everyone has had enough light to acknowledge that there's a God and that they're a sinner and they need him to make them righteous. He's revealed it in many, many ways. But what have we done with this knowledge or this wisdom or this ability to see all this? We've, re- we've suppressed it. The God has designed that we must come to him and believe him and believe in him by faith, the Bible says, like little children. Let me hit this real quick. Go to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, look at verses 25 through 30. I love this. Matthew 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the smart people, from the wise and the understanding, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Don't miss this. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus stands there and he says, Father, I thank you that you've hidden it from the smart folks and revealed it to your little children because this is your gracious will. Let me explain to you why it's great and God's gracious will that spiritual truth and knowledge of who God is and how to get right with him is revealed to the children. Because right now, as I look around the room, there's a lot of people in this room that are smarter than me. And you say, ah, Jim, you know the Bible. so You don't understand. I'm not as smart as I look. People that have known me for years, my kids and my wife will tell you, Jim's good in a lot of areas, but there's a lot of areas he ain't too smart. I'm serious. Over the years, when people even try to explain to me, Chris and I have had computer conversations and the exact same one over and over and over, and I still can't tell you the difference between a virus and a bug. And he's told me 10 times, but it just doesn't sink in. Some of you are engineers, And you can figure out the math on how to get something to the space station and not hit any satellites and all this stuff. That makes my head hurt. If God only revealed his truth to the smartest, that'd leave a lot of us out, wouldn't it? But he's actually designed it that it's available to everyone, even children. Because the only way you're going to get God's wisdom is if you humble yourself and say, I'm too stupid to be a man. I don't even have the understanding of a man. God, I I need you. I need your help. That's why daily we're to lay our flesh on the altar and say, "By, by your grace. But I believe you will teach me. You will show me. I believe you will reveal to me. And I'm just going to say this to you, the guys that are here, ladies here that are smart, and you're intellectual and you're engineers. I'm sorry. I really am. Because it's going to get in the way of your walk with the Lord because you're used to figuring things out, thinking them through. And that's not how spiritual truth is discerned. 
And you're going to have to daily lay that on the altar. We've already seen in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, that salvation is by what? By faith. Those who are righteous will be righteous by faith. Go to Romans chapter 3. I'm going to hit this real fast, and we're just going to give you a little preview as we run through Romans, something that's going to be jumping off the pages over and over. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through what? Faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, this same Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Like I told you, we'll deal with that later when we get to chapter 2 and chapter 3, his patience with sinning. It was also show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Stop trying to make it more than that. Go to Romans chapter 5. Look at verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by what? By faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope. That word hope means certainty of the glory of God. Go to Romans 9. Look at verses 30 and 32. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not even pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that's by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness didn't succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Again, folks, you're going to have to be reminded of this daily. God responds to, without what, it's impossible to please God. Faith. Faith is not figuring it out. Faith is not even understanding it. Faith is just believing it because he said it. But we need to be willing like little children and say, all right, God, I don't know how you're one God. You've always existed in three persons. That makes my head hurt. But I believe it. I don't understand how you save, except the Bible says that you give everyone an opportunity, that Jesus died for the whole world, yet the whole world's not going to heaven. Yet, if we do come to you, you did it, not us. I don't understand how that all works, but I don't have to. I believe it. And God says, good for you. But even with all that God did to reveal himself and his holiness and his wrath against unrighteousness and with all that he's done to show his love and patience and mercy, mankind chooses to worship almost everything else instead of him, including things of their own creation. Go back to Romans chapter 1. Look at verses 21 through 23 again. For although they knew God. Did you catch that? Did they know God? They knew he was there. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise... 
they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They knew, but they decided to worship things they created. By the way, we got to let this sink in for a minute. This is the problem we all have. You say, well, I don't worship idols. Be careful. I heard this one song years and years ago. I don't care if it rains or freezes as long as I got that plastic Jesus sitting on the dashboard of my car. Some of you have a tendency to look to your bank account that you've stored away to take care of you. Some of you are absolutely scared to death about your retirement savings disappearing in a stock market crash. I've gone from preaching to meddling. Your faith is in something you've created. And actually, the Bible says if you even have that, it was God's gift to you, not anything you did. Do you see the danger? You want further evidence of how dangerous it is and how we all can just like that start doing that? The nation of Israel has God reveal himself to them through the 10 plagues in Egypt. I mean, it's pretty clear God did that, right? By the time it's all said and done, they'll all know that it was God. He brings them through the Red Sea. Just think about that. They watch the Egyptians drown. They get to the promised land and, or in the wilderness and to, just short of the promised land. And God says, Moses, come talk to me for a few days. He goes up on the mountain and they say, we don't know what happened to this Moses fellow. Let's make idol. an idol for it. And they fashioned a golden calf and began to worship it. How many days did it even take them? Less than 40. And they're already sitting worshiping. We have that within us, a desire to worship Go to Isaiah 44. This is, this is something some of you may have seen before. Some of you might not. Listen to the irony. Listen to the stupidity of worshiping man-made idols. Isaiah 44, look at verses 6 and following. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. There's the Father and the Son. I am the first and the last Besides me, there is no God who is like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? Are you and you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Now, all who fashion idols are nothing and the things they delight in do not profit. They witness, sorry, their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches out a line. He marks it out with a pencil and he shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. 
He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, the other half, he makes into his, a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see in their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say half of it I burned in the fire, and I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? In other words, God says, did they even thought about the fact that they took one tree, half of it they cooked their fire with and warmed, cooked their food with and warmed themselves. The other half, they made into a God and bowed down to it. What if they picked the wrong half? It's foolish. Oh, but doesn't God also say to us, don't put your faith in the foolishness of riches. Do you realize money makes the same promises that God makes? Money says, I'll take care of you. I'll provide for you. I'll make sure you have all you need. Isn't that what God's told us? That's why Jesus said, you can't serve both God and money. You can't serve God and money. Is money a bad thing? No, it's a tool. But the love of money is a bad thing. As we just saw, though, in the end, don't miss this. Go back to Isaiah 44, verse 18. As we just saw in the end of this passage in Isaiah, when people persist in worshiping things other than the one and only God, he will, at the time of his choosing, hand you over to your own wishes. Don't miss that. Look at verse 18. They know not, nor do they discern, for he, God, has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. The Bible teaches, and I'm going to lay this out for you, and I'm going to take a passage of Scripture that some people try to use in the wrong way, and I'm going to walk you through it. But I'm going to show you that the Bible is very, very clear that God is the one who initiates this game of hide-and-seek. I'm here, but you have to come find me. But if you seek me with your whole heart and you humble yourself, I will, you will be found. You will find me. I will be found by you. But he's also the one who determines how much light everyone gets. We've already talked about that, haven't we? He has chosen who gets more light than others, and he gets to because this is his creation, his world. Everyone hears, but not everybody gets the same amount. But he also determines how long you have until he shuts the door. You do realize that when the ark was shut, Moses, sorry, Noah and his family didn't close the door. God did. And in doing so, he was protecting Noah and his family and shutting everybody else out. There comes a point where God will shut the door or just give you over to your desires. Go to Romans chapter 1 again. Look at verses 24 through 32. Therefore, because they, they, even though they knew God, they chose not to acknowledge him. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, 
Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Folks, don't miss this. The Bible says one of the evidences that God is shutting the door and giving you over, homosexuality becomes a lot more rampant, and all these sins that have always existed in mankind begin to become even more and more and more noticeable. And folks, I can't say it any more clearly than this. When we as a nation, even in our Supreme Court, say that these things are not only okay, they're now legal. What has God done to us as a nation? He's given us over. Now, again, be careful. We're going to see by the end of tonight's study, there's still opportunity but we need to be careful. Let me show you what I mean. Go to John chapter 12. Go to John chapter 12. We'll start in verse 35. Look at what Jesus says in verse 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Now, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Now, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. They didn't. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, because they would not believe, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. In other words, God says, there comes a point when I determine you've had your opportunity. When that happens, you're in a sad state. That's one of the things we've taught our kids early is when the spirit convicts, respond. Don't get good at tuning him out because you develop a hard heart. And once that heart's hard, you're in trouble. So let's go back to Exodus chapter 7. I want to kind of do this fast, and I'm going to do it so fast that some of you will not be able to keep up, and I understand that, but it's on the recording if you want to go back and take the time to push stop and write these down for yourself. I'm going to show you this whole process in Pharaoh, how God tells Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. But at the beginning, God does not harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardens his own heart. 
And I'm going to show you from the scriptures how it clearly shows in the beginning, the decision to say no to the people being released was Pharaoh's decision. But there comes a point where God hardens Pharaoh's heart once, gives him one more opportunity, and then from that point on, God hardens Pharaoh's heart so that he can't respond. Look at Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So God says to Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. But don't assume that that means from the first day, you're going to see the scripture shows us that God does harden Pharaoh's heart, but not at the beginning. Jump down to chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. All right, so who's determining whether or not his heart's hard? At this point, it's Pharaoh. It becomes even more clear. Stick with me here. Look at verses 22 and 23 of chapter 7. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart. He had an opportunity, but he didn't. Jump over to chapter 8. Look at verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, He hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So who's hardening Pharaoh's heart right now? Is it God or is it Pharaoh? It's Pharaoh, very clearly. Look at verse 19 of chapter 8. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Jump down to uh, chapter 8, verse 32. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also. And did not let the people go. Folks, it's clear. The one hardening Pharaoh's heart is Pharaoh. He's making these decisions. The Bible says he's hardening his heart. Just like all the other times. Look at chapter 9, verse 7. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Still on him. But God does something in verse 12 here. Look at verse 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And he didn't listen to them as the Lord had spoken. So who hardened Pharaoh's heart in verse 12? God did. Now go over to chapter 9, verse 34. You'll see that Pharaoh had one more opportunity. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So who hardened Pharaoh's heart this time? God or Pharaoh? Pharaoh did. He did. Now... Look at verse 35, and all the rest of them now, and the rest of the story, Pharaoh's opportunity is gone. Look at verse 35. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So God says, I've shut the door. I've hardened his heart now. Go to chapter 10, verse 20. 
But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Look at verse 27. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Look at chapter 11, verse 10. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Yes, God did tell Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, but he says, in time. I know the end of the story. I'm going to give him opportunity, and I'm going to show my wonders, and he's not going to listen. There'll come a point where I'll give him over, and I'll shut the door. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we'll start in verse 17, 17 through 19. Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, due to what? The hardness of their heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Then he goes on and says, but that's not how you guys should be living. Let me say this to you. I want you to listen closely. This is very important that you understand the difference here. For an unbeliever, God gives opportunity to be saved, but he determines when the opportunity begins And he's already begun at creation, but there are other opportunities. But he also determines when the opportunity is over. Now, for a believer, can a believer harden their heart? Yes. Does that mean a believer can come to a point where they lose their salvation? No. But the Bible also does describe, and we won't have time to go into that tonight in the book of 1 John, that there is such a thing as a sin unto death. In other words, Christians who continually reject the Spirit's work in sanctifying them can come to a point where God says, you're doing more damage here on earth than good, and I know you're not going to listen to me, and he'll take you home early. You'll go to heaven because of his grace, but you'll suffer loss, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I just want to encourage you as well. If you're listening right now to this recording and you don't know the Lord, you don't know when he's going to shut the door. He's given you light. Respond while you have the light. But once he's given you over, it's a horrible place to be. And by the way, I actually think some of the most miserable people on the earth aren't unbelievers, but Christians who have Harden their hearts to the spirits talking to them. Folks, again, I'm going to preach to you and to everyone until the day you die like you have opportunity. Why? Because I'm not God. And I'm not going to say, well, that person's already passed their point or that person. That's not my call. That's not your call. But we have to be faithful to the scriptures as well. There comes a point where God says, I'm going to give you over. And I'll tell you right now, I'm not saying it's too late for the United States, but it ain't looking good. It ain't looking good. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 
Don't miss this. 2 Timothy 3. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Isn't that interesting how that's in this list too? Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. The Bible says in the last days, wickedness is going to increase. Don't miss what Jesus said while he was being led to the cross and the women were weeping. He says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Because if they'll do this while I'm here, just think what it's going to be like when I'm gone. And after he takes the church away in the rapture, folks, you don't even want to fathom how bad it's going to be on this earth. The Bible says it's going to get so bad in the tribulation period that if God doesn't cut those days short, every human being will die. That's how bad it's going to be. And we're already seeing now because of the ability with social media and all these different things, what's going along the globe. And there's always been looting, but now it's all of a sudden become, they're not even waiting for the fire or the flood. Now they're coming in smashing and grabbing and we're seeing all this stuff happening. But hang on. The Bible said it was going to be this way. Should we all of a sudden get panicked? So we all of a sudden say, well, we've got to get the right people in office and we've got to put our faith in government and we've got to get... No, we need to humble ourselves and say, all right, Lord, we're living in the days that you've chosen where I'd live and when I'd live. He's determined the time you'd be and you're supposed to be living at this time and he has his reasons so you'd come to know him and that he could use you for his purposes in this time as light. And I want you to be real careful as not just homosexuality, but all the other sins that were listed in that list. We always tried to jump on one. But all the other sins begin to become more and more prevalent. Be careful of falling into that trap of thinking, well, I don't do that stuff. Let me give you a commercial for next time we get together in two weeks. Go to Romans chapter 2. Paul says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? There it is again. He's patient with sin. He has a reason. We'll deal with that next time. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He'll render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. And by those who are self-seeking and don't obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there'll be wrath and fury. There'll be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. We have to be real careful. God has not brought the day of judgment yet, has he? Is, by the way, has the day been set? Yes, we already saw that in Acts 17. He's already set the day of judgment. Hasn't happened yet. Why? 
We'll deal with that more when we get into that part. But he has his reasons for why he's been patient with sin. Why? Because he's not wanting everyone to perish, but people to come to repentance. He's been patient. I remember, and we'll close with this. I remember that um, a few years ago when the terrorists would capture these Christians. Remember they lined them all up on the beach and then beheaded them? I couldn't watch the video. I never did, but people were able to watch the video. And I just remember in me, my anger, those terrorists need to be judged. Then God spoke to me and he said, um, y'all don't know, who, you don't know who Paul was, right? Paul was a terrorist. He was doing the exact same thing. He was going city to city, town to town, capturing Christians and having them put to death. But God was patient. And Paul, the rest of his life, said, man, I deserved his wrath, but he spared me. And we're studying now the book of Romans that God used Paul, the terrorist, to write. And you're seeing there's a depth of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. We have to be careful that we don't fall into that mindset of thinking, I don't do those things. I don't have that kind of sexual sin. Okay, but do you still struggle with sexual temptation of other kinds? Be careful, you who judge. You do the same things. You struggle with the same stuff. And we've been forgiven. And God was patient with us, was he not? Why don't we share that same grace? I'll close with this. How many times have you been driving down the road and you're going a little fast? And then all of a sudden you realize there's a police car. And you go, whoa. And then you look in your rearview mirror. Please don't pull me. Please don't pull me over. And then you realize, oh, good. He let me go. And then somebody blows by you and you say, I hope there's a cop up there. We got to be careful. I love y'all. We'll see y'all in two weeks. Thanks for coming.